Well, if you have your Bible with you this morning, and I hope you do, I would invite you to open it up with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians 7, and listen carefully and attentively as I read the first seven verses of this inspired chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 to 7. And as I read this text, I remind you this is the inspired and inerrant Word of God. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time. You might devote yourselves to prayer. But then it come, come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. The word of the Lord. Well, we're now nearing the midpoint of our study in the book of 1 Corinthians. This morning we come to an important thematic and structural division, this inspired letter from the Apostle Paul. The first six chapters of 1 Corinthians, Paul has been responding to some of the negative reports he's received about this church from Chloe and from others, dealing first of all with the issue of divisions and worldly wisdom, and then turning secondly to rebuke the church for their failure to exercise discipline among the members. Paul is not impressed with the Corinthian tendency to overlook sin and misconduct within their own assembly while they harshly condemn non-believers outside of the church. Chapter 5, chapter 6 deal almost exclusively with the subject of sexual immorality in the lives of these church members. And we've taken the time in this sermon series to slow down and to consider some very difficult and heavy-duty subjects. Now we've done that because an examination of these very difficult issues are so very relevant, so very important for the church today in helping us navigate the sexual revolution in which we now find ourselves. But this morning we come to chapter 7 and from this point forward in the epistle, Paul will be responding directly to a number of questions the Corinthians have written to him in another letter. Way back in the introductory message to this sermon series, I mentioned the fact that Paul and the Corinthians had exchanged a number of letters with one another, and several of those letters are no longer in existence. Because we no longer have the Corinthian letter in our possession, it's impossible to know precisely what the Corinthians had written to Paul, or what their tone and their motive was and what they had written. We don't know for sure whether it was a friendly letter or whether it was a hostile letter. But what we do know is that Paul received questions from this church, and we know that because of what we read in verse 1 of our text. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. This expression here in verse 1 is going to appear a number of times in the second part of 1 Corinthians. It demonstrates that Paul is now responding to specific issues the Corinthians were deeply concerned about. 
At certain points in the second half of this letter, Paul is going to quote directly from the lost Corinthian letter, just as he's already quoted a number of popular slogans and mottos that were being carelessly thrown around in the church. Well, the first of these direct quotations from the Corinthians is found in verse 1 of our text. And if you're reading from a modern translation of the Bible, you'll notice the editors have put the text in quotation marks so we can tell the difference between the words of the Corinthians and the words of the Apostle Paul. As we've been working our way through these chapters in recent weeks, I pointed out several of these Corinthian slogans, and as we've already observed, these mottos often contain a nugget of spiritual truth that is mixed up with a great deal of, of theological error. And Paul's custom, as we've already seen, is to quote the slogan directly, to affirm what is true, and then to reject or to qualify what is false and misleading. Again, this is the pattern that Paul will follow here in the opening verse of chapter 7 as he quotes from the Corinthian letter and then spends the remainder of the chapter critiquing the statement and nuancing the statement so that the church in Corinth is not led down a dangerous moral path. Let's begin then by looking at the Corinthian motto and attempting to understand the historical and the religious situation that was leading these Christians into even greater depths of spiritual and moral depravity. Verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, and then the quotation, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Dealing with this opening verse in chapter 7, it is crucial to recognize that Paul is quoting directly from the Corinthians and that he is not expressing his own authoritative view on the subject. In past generations, many commentators have dropped the ball at this point in their interpretation because they have not adequately distinguished between Paul's words and the Corinthians' words. And this error in interpretation has led many good and godly people to conclude, or at least to suspect, that Paul held a very negative and almost dismissive view towards marriage and sexuality. There is a long-standing and oft-repeated myth in the church that the Apostle Paul was anti-marriage and anti-sex and pro-celibacy. And those who have bought into this mythology about Paul often turn to 1 Corinthians 7 for biblical support. But as soon as we come to realize that Paul is quoting the Corinthians here in verse 1 and is not giving us his own opinion on sexual relations, we discover to our great relief that Paul is not anti-marriage and not anti-sex at all. Quite to the contrary, in fact. Careful examination of the New Testament letters, especially that passage we read earlier in this service from Ephesians 5, reveals a man who is absolutely in favor of marriage, a man who is absolutely in favor of sexual intimacy between a husband and a wife. Paul sees marriage and sex as good and gracious gifts from God that reflect the intimate relationship and union between Jesus Christ and the church. And so it is rather unfortunate that Paul's legacy has been so marred and distorted by a misinterpretation of this very chapter. But even more tragic than that is how a misunderstanding of Paul's viewpoint has crept into the church of Christ and created a great deal of confusion so that even today in the 21st century, we find certain branches of the Christian church encouraging and even mandating sexual abstinence for all of its clergy, all priests, all monks, all nuns, when the Bible requires no such thing. 
You see, friends, a proper interpretation of the Word of God has practical consequences for our lives and for our churches. And that is why it's so important to dig deeply into the Word of God and to get it right. Corinthian slogan that's quoted here in verse 1 continues this theme of sexual conduct among Christian people. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now given all that we've already studied in this book about sexual immorality in chapter 5 and chapter 6, we may be tempted to think that the Corinthians were merely speaking here about sinful and immoral sexual practices. They were speaking here about things like prostitution and adultery and fornication and incest. For surely in all of those cases, we would wholeheartedly agree that sexual intimacy between a man and a woman is wrong and sinful in the eyes of God. When this statement is properly qualified, there is indeed a nugget of truth within it. And certainly as Christian men and women, we are called to recognize the biblical boundaries and the biblical restraints that are to govern our sexual lives. But here in the larger context of chapter 7, it becomes apparent very quickly the Corinthians are not qualifying the slogan in this way, but rather they are making a blanket prohibition against any and all forms of sexual contact between a man and a woman. Apparently within this church, a certain group had come to the conclusion that all forms of sexual expression, whether outside of marriage or inside of marriage, were wrong and dirty and inappropriate, and sinful. They had come to believe, they had come to teach, the only way a Christian man or woman can live a God-honoring life is to live a celibate life. And so we are brought here in the opening verse of chapter 7 to discover yet another layer of moral dysfunction in this already dysfunctional and sexually broken church. When it comes to sexual ethics and sexual conduct, the views of the Corinthian Christians basically fell into two extreme categories. On the one hand were the libertines that Paul has been dealing with in previous chapters, those men and women in the church who believed they had the liberty to do whatever they pleased with their bodies, who thought that sex was little more than an animal appetite to be gratified. One group in the church was was sexually immoral, was actively and openly defending their so-called right to engage in sexual sin while claiming the forgiveness and the grace of Jesus Christ. And as we saw a few weeks ago, Paul did not hesitate to tell these libertines if they continue in this lifestyle of unrepentant sexual sin, they are marching straight down a highway that will eventually lead them into hell. But now at the beginning of verse chapter 7, we discover that there was a second group of professing Christians in the church that held quite a different opinion about sex. The second group was probably quite disgusted and disillusioned by all of the sexual sin that they had witnessed within their own church, within their own culture, and as a result, they had decided that the best course of action they could take was to abstain completely from sexual activity and to commit themselves to a strict life of celibacy. Now, of course, we understand there is nothing wrong with a single person choosing to remain celibate and unmarried. But the problem in Corinth was that this little group in the church thought that all of the married people should stop having sex too. 
And so unbelievable as this may sound, in the church of Corinth, certain husbands were refusing to have sex with their wives, certain wives were refusing to have sex with their husbands, thinking that in following this religious discipline, they were pleasing God, and that they were living their lives on a higher spiritual level than everyone else. There's a technical term for this kind of religious behavior. The term is asceticism. Although it may seem a little bit bizarre to us today in our modern culture, asceticism made complete sense for many of the Corinthians who had been saved out of the Greek culture and worldview. A few weeks ago, I explained how certain elements of Greek philosophy had trickled down into the Corinthian church, how some of the popular writings of a famous philosopher named Plato had started to corrupt the theology and the teaching of the church. As you may remember, Plato and the Greeks held a very high view of the human soul and a very low view of the human body. And that low view of the body, which was so typical of the ancient Greek world, had led some of the Christians to conclude that sex was dirty, that sex was spiritually damaging. Asceticism, this religious impulse to deprive the body of pleasure in order to elevate the soul, was appealing to many people in the early church. And in Colossians chapter 2, 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul confronts the heresy directly. He condemns it in no uncertain terms. For example, in 1 Timothy 4, we read these prophetic words from the Apostle Paul. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. And then listen to this. Who forbid marriage and who require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. It's obvious, friends, Paul is not a religious ascetic and Paul did not think very highly of people who developed unbiblical rules and traditions about what a good Christian should eat or drink or whether a good Christian should get married or not. This is a worldview, this is a form of legalism that Paul rejected very openly, even labeling it here in 1 Timothy 4 as the teaching of demons. Here in Corinth, a mere five years after Paul had planted the church, we find this same brand of demonic heresy, and sadly it is a tendency that stubbornly lingered in the early church. It persisted throughout the medieval age. A low view of sexuality, the unbiblical notion that complete abstinence places you on a higher level, on a higher plane than the average Christian believer. The evidence, the effects of that same ancient Heresy can be seen today in branches of the church where the ordained clergy are forced to remain single and celibate as a condition of their ministry. Long ago in 1 Timothy 4, Paul predicted that such things would happen and he utterly condemned it as the doctrine of demons. Asceticism. The influence of Greek philosophy was probably the main reason why some of these Corinthians were forbidding sex within their marriages, why they were promoting a lifestyle of complete abstinence, but there may have been other factors as well. You see, further down the page, in verse 26, Paul makes an interesting comment that may shed some extra light on the situation. In verse 26, Paul expresses his own opinion. It may indeed be a good thing for a person to remain single and celibate because of the, of some present distress that was afflicting the church. 
Unfortunately, Paul doesn't go into any detail. He doesn't tell us exactly what the distress was. But we do know from history that the Greek world endured a very severe famine right around the time when Paul was writing this letter. It was a famine that would have made it incredibly difficult for parents to provide enough food for their children. Although this is little more than an educated guess, it may be that some of the married people in Corinth were refusing to have sex with their spouse because they were afraid of getting pregnant. They were well aware of how difficult it would be to provide a living, to provide food and clothing for a growing family. There may well have been unique historical pressures that influenced some of Paul's marital advice in this chapter, but at the end of the day, we cannot know for sure what it was. Whatever the distress might have been, Paul himself believed that in this particular situation, there were some very good and practical reasons why a person would want to remain single and not to take on the responsibility of getting married and raising a family. We're going to talk more about Paul's views on celibacy and singleness in coming weeks when we get to the second half of the chapter. But for now, the most important thing to understand is that marriages in Corinth were breaking down. Husbands and wives were refusing to have sex with one another, either for practical reasons related to the famine or else for spiritual reasons related to asceticism and the Greek worldview. In verse 1, the Corinthians express a flawed, unbiblical conviction about sexual abstinence, this opinion that it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And now in the light of that deeply flawed assertion, Paul is going to give his authoritative and apostolic rebuttal. As we work our way through the remainder of this chapter over the next two or three weeks, we're going to discover that all of Paul's instruction to the church regarding singleness and marriage and celibacy and divorce and remarriage is based on one guiding principle that is expressed most clearly and most directly down the page in verse 20. This is really the key statement in this chapter, verse 20. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Paul's inspired advice to all of the Corinthians, whether married or divorced or single or celibate, is to remain as they are. This guiding principle will be repeated numerous times by the author, and then it will be applied to specific groups of people that were represented in the church. Paul speaks first of all in verses 2-6 to to those who are already married and encourages them to remain fully engaged in their sexual relationships. Secondly, he speaks in verses 7 to 9 to those who were previously married, to the widows and the widowers in the church, and he counsels them to remain in their single and celibate state if they are able to do so. Thirdly, Paul turns to the married couples in the church who are going through struggles in their marriage, and he encourages them not to seek a solution in divorce. And finally, in verses 25 and following, he speaks to those in the church who have never before been married. And once again, he encourages them in this present distress to remain in their single state if possible, or else to get married and to begin a sexual relationship if that is what they prefer. Remain as you are is Paul's general advice in this chapter. But as he addresses each group, as he addresses each situation in the church, we will see how he carefully qualifies and nuances his advice, making it very clear that the married state is no more spiritual than the celibate state, and the celibate state is no more spiritual than the married. In Paul's view, in the view of Orthodox Christianity, both marriage and celibacy are gifts from God. And both of these gifts come with their own set of benefits and difficulties. 
Well, that's a brief overview of the chapter. In light of that roadmap, let's turn again to the first six verses of our text and discover what Paul and the Holy Spirit would teach us about the importance of sex within our marriages and how this biblical understanding radically differs from the ascetic Corinthians who thought that it was more spiritual to be celibate. You know, just as verse 1 of our text has somehow been mis misunderstood and misinterpreted as representing the view of Paul. So verse 2 of this text has sometimes been misunderstood, and specifically the second half of that verse where Paul commands that each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Now some people have taken those words in the second half of verse 2 to mean that each and every person in the church is obligated to get married. Each person is obligated to find a husband or a wife in order to guard themselves against temptation from sin. But such an understanding of Paul's words in that verse is impossible because of what Paul writes later on in the chapter. Just a few verses down the page, we discover Paul himself is a single and celibate man. Paul recognizes that singleness and celibacy is a perfectly legitimate, noble, and dignified way of life. And so unless we are willing to let Paul contradict himself within the span of a few verses, we cannot possibly interpret verse 2 as a command for every Christian man or woman to get married. Rather, what the Apostle Paul is teaching us in this verse applies to those in the church who are already married. What he's teaching and commanding in this verse is that every Christian who has already entered into the marriage covenant is responsible before God and before their spouse to maintain a regular, ongoing sexual relationship. What Paul writes here is that each person is to have their own wife and their own husband. And he is using the, the verb to have as a way of speaking politely and euphemistically about sexual intercourse. To have your husband or to have your wife is another way of saying to have sex with your husband or to have sex with your wife. It is just as plain and just as simple as that. And what's remarkable about Paul's teaching here in verse 2 is that he is not giving married people a suggestion about what they might consider doing in the bedroom, but rather he is giving them an authoritative and apostolic command. In the original Greek language, the verb to have has been put by Paul in the present continuous tense and in the imperative mood. In other words, Paul is commanding the married couples in Corinth to maintain a sexual relationship with their spouse and to reject any unbiblical notion about celibate, sexless marriages. Brothers and sisters, if you have ever bought into the myth that the Bible and Christianity are anti-sex and that the Christian faith has almost nothing good to say about sex, allow this verse to blow the satanic lie out of the water. God created sex. And God created sex not only for pro procreation, but also for pleasure and for the binding together of a man and a, and a woman. Sexual intercourse within the context of a monogamous heterosexual marriage is not dirty, nor is it shameful, nor is it unspiritual, nor is it a necessary evil as St. Augustine and some of the early church fathers seem to teach. Nor is sex simply a nice suggestion or a nice ideal for people who are already married. Sex is a biblical command for a biblical marriage. It is a biblical mandate for every man and woman who has entered into the marriage covenant and has made their vows before God. 
And what that means, friends, in a very practical sense, is that as long as you are physically able to have sexual relations with your husband or your wife, you are under a divine mandate to do so. Now, some Christians might be a little surprised to hear that. Some might be a little dismayed to hear that. Some might be excited to hear that. That is precisely what the Holy Spirit is teaching us in this chapter. If you are married, if you are physically able, you are under divine obligation to maintain a regular, ongoing sexual relationship with your spouse. Married people who fail to maintain this relationship with one another, married people who fall into the unhealthy pattern of acting like roommates, sleeping in separate beds, never uniting sexually, are not only in desperate need of marital counseling, they are in disobedience to God's command. And the reason behind this in the Scripture is twofold. The first reason why God requires every married couple to maintain healthy sex life is because of the temptation we continually face with with sexual immorality. That's what Paul teaches in the first half of verse 2. If you have a strong sexual appetite that is not being fulfilled in the context of a heterosexual, monogamous marriage, there is a good possibility that your appetite will eventually lead you into sin. And I would dare say that some of us in this room know that to be true, not only in theory, but from personal experience. A lousy marriage, a lousy sex life, is one reason why so many married people turn to destructive and sinful behaviors such as prostitution, adultery, pornography, and masturbation. And if you, married brother or sister, are not actively fostering a sexual relationship with your spouse, you are quite simply setting your marriage up for disaster. Sexless, celibate, frigid marriages dishonor God. And there is a very good and practical reason why that is the case. Maybe one of the reasons there was so many sexual problems in the Corinthian church, one of the reasons there was so much sexual dysfunction and people going to the prostitutes is because of these ascetic Christians who are forbidding in their marriages what God had commanded and designed for our own good, for His greater glory. Now, of course, that doesn't excuse sexual sin even one iota. But it does force us to face up to reality. Married couples, if you want to be weak and vulnerable to sexual sin, infidelity, and even divorce, one of the very best ways that you can do it is to stop having sex with your spouse and to neglect this very important aspect of your married life. A sexually sterile marriage, according to the Bible, is a spiritually dangerous marriage. And more often than not, this form of dysfunction within a marriage will eventually lead to other destructive and sinful patterns. Things such as anger and bitterness and resentment, sexual affairs, pornographic addictions, separation, divorce. Paul commands married couples to maintain their sex lives as a way to guard against temptation, but there is a second reason why Paul commands us to do this, and we read about it in verses 3-6. to If it is possible that you missed the force of Paul's command in verse 2, you cannot possibly miss the force of what he says in verses 3-6, to as Paul speaks in language that is strong, plain, and blunt. Let's read those verses again. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. 
For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. You know, many of us North Americans under the spell of Hollywood chick flicks and sappy romance novels have come to think of sexual intimacy as little more than an emotional fling that magically happens when the stars align in just the right way and we feel those special butterflies flittering in the stomach. Paul tells us in this verse, in these verses, sex within marriage is a duty. Paul tells us in these verses, sex within marriage is a responsibility. Now I know that doesn't sound very romantic. I know that's not going to be a popular notion in many Hollywood movies. That is what the Bible teaches us about sex within marriage. Sex is not merely a privilege to enjoy once in a blue moon when the mood suddenly strikes and we feel in a giddy, romantic state of mind. It is a spiritual duty to fulfill on a regular basis. And so if you are married, Paul is saying here in these verses, it is your spiritual duty before God to sexually satisfy your spouse. You are to give to your husband, you are to give to your wife their conjugal rights, and you are to do so willingly frequently, and self-sacrificially. Although the Bible's teaching on the giving of conjugal rights might sound strange to our modern, romanticized ears, this teaching is deeply rooted in God's design for marriage that we studied a few weeks ago in Genesis 2. I hope you'll recall that in Genesis 2, God defines marriage as a man and a woman becoming one flesh so that the husband now belongs to his wife, so that the wife now belongs to her husband. And once we have crossed that threshold, once we've crossed the Rubicon and entered into the marriage covenant, it is no longer me over here doing my own thing and her over there doing her own thing. It is us together doing our thing. It is two people who have now been made one. And so in Christian marriages, we ought to share the same bank account. We ought to share the same house. We ought to share the same bed. We ought to share everything with one another, including our own bodies. That's what Paul is saying to the church here in verse 4. As a married man, my heart and my body now fully belong to my wife, and her heart and her body now belong to me. Thirteen years ago, when Leslie and I stood at the front of Calvary Gospel Church, and we made our vows to one another before God and in the presence of witnesses, God did something remarkable in our lives. In His grace, in His kindness, God made us one flesh so that Leslie is now a part of me. And I'm a part of her. I'm no longer complete without her. And at the age of 21, when I became a married man, God gave me responsibilities to fulfill in my family. He gave me the responsibility to love and to care for Leslie and later on for our children. He gave me the responsibility to provide food and shelter and clothing, a a steady source of income. He gave me the responsibility to provide protection to make sure that Leslie and the kids are safe and secure. And he also gave the responsibility to make sure that my wife is emotionally and sexually fulfilled. 
In biblical marriage, when the two individuals become one flesh, the husband and the wife have duties and responsibilities towards one another that must be fulfilled as a condition of the covenant. And one of those duties is sexual. And so crucial is this duty within marriage. Paul describes a failure to fulfill it as a form of robbery and fraud. In the ESV translation, it says, do not deprive one another. But the Greek verb there in verse 5 means to rob someone or to perpetrate an act of fraud. Any husband who refuses to submit his body sexually to his wife is guilty of fraud and robbery. Any wife who refuses to submit her body to her husband is a robber. When married couples refuse to maintain marital relations, we not only open ourselves up to sexual temptation and sin, we also rob and we cheat our spouse of what rightfully belongs to them, what we vowed to give to them when we stood in the presence of God and we said to them, I take this woman or this man to have and to hold. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. To have and to hold. What does that mean? It's talking about sex. It's talking about intimacy. This is a remarkably practical, straightforward teaching that reveals God's gracious design. But what I find most remarkable here in these verses is a strong emphasis that Paul places on full equality and mutuality. In the ancient Greek world, in the Roman world, and to some degree in our modern society today, sex has been seen as the man's privilege and the woman's duty. We don't often put it that bluntly, but that's often the way things are in practice. But understand this morning, God never intended it to be that way and He does not want our Christian marriages to operate with that kind of worldly, ungodly mindset. In a healthy, functional Christian marriage, sex is every bit as much the woman's privilege as it is the man's privilege and there is just as much duty placed upon the man as there is upon the woman. Married men, brothers... One of the ways we are called to apply this text in our lives and our marriages is by taking the time and making the effort to sexually fulfill our wives just as we expect our wives to sexually fulfill us. And if we are not taking the effort to do that, we are actually robbing our wives of their conjugal rights. We are rebelling against the God who brought us together. Christian husband, if sex is only pleasurable and fulfilling for you and not for your wife, it is your duty before God to figure out what pleases and satisfies her. Otherwise, your sexual relationship is a form of robbery and fraud. And men, let me suggest to you something that I have learned along the way in my own marriage. A healthy, a vibrant sex life does not start five minutes before your head hits the the pillow as nice and convenient as that might be. A good sex life starts first thing in the morning in the way that we treat our wives. It starts in the way that we speak to our wives throughout the day, in the way that we spend time with our wives after work, in the way that we practically serve our wives by tidying up the house, by doing the lawn, by taking care of the kids. It's in the way that we cuddle on the couch with our wives after the kids have gone to bed. It is even in the way that we take our wives to shop at Ikea on Saturday morning when we would rather be doing anything else in the world. God has wired men and women differently when it comes to sexual fulfillment. And we husbands need to learn how to please our wives 
We need to learn how to let them know that they are genuinely loved and genuinely treasured, just as wives must learn to do the same for us. If we truly want to honor the Lord in our marriages, if we want to build relationships that are strong and resistant to temptation to sin, we must give ourselves to the duty of sex. Our attitude in marriage should never be a selfish desire to exploit the body of our spouse for our own gratification, but rather to willingly, joyfully, selflessly give ourselves to our spouse, just as Jesus Christ has willingly, joyfully, and selflessly given himself to us. The ideal within marriage is not a self-centered demanding of your own sexual rights. Rather, it is a willing and joyful surrendering of ourselves and of our physical bodies for the spiritual good of the other. God did not create marriage as a self-centered institution. He created it as an other-centered institution. And once we get that truth nice and straight in our mind, we will come to realize the Apostle Paul is not in any way making allowance here in the text for sexual abuse or for impurity in the bedroom. Hebrews 13.4 Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral. No husband who truly loves and treasures his wife will force her sexually against her will. Nor will he use 1 Corinthians 7 as a spiritual weapon to beat her into submission. Nor will he perform or demand any sexual act that makes her feel uncomfortable or that violates her moral scruples before God. Just because you saw it in a magazine or saw it on the internet doesn't mean that your wife has to do it. The same thing is goes for wife in relation to the husband. We must define, we must respect moral boundaries and convictions even within our marriages. Not everything goes in marriage. Now, Christian wives, I have spoken a specific word to husbands. Now I have a specific word for you. Christian women, in your marriages, sex is never to be withheld as a weapon to punish your husband. Sex is never to be used as a negotiating tool for manipulation and control. There is only one instance when it's appropriate to withhold sex from your spouse, and Paul tells us about it in verse 5. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement, for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Now, if for some reason you and your husband mutually agree to refrain from sex so you have more time to fast and to pray together, Paul says it is completely appropriately for you to do so. For short periods of time, he says. But Paul himself goes on in the very next verse to say this is a concession and not a command. We are under no biblical compulsion to refrain from sex for the purpose of fasting and prayer. But if it is ever going to happen, it must be for this reason and for this reason alone. To be completely honest and candid with you, I have never once in my life heard of a Christian couple putting this biblical teaching into practice. I don't know about you. I've never heard of it. Wives, practically speaking, this means it is almost never a... Never good or godly to intentionally deprive your husband of his conjugal right. Attempting to control your spouse by withholding sex is a form of sexual abuse. And if you have fallen into the pattern of manipulating your spouse, it must end 
and it must end today. Brothers and sisters, God did not design sex as a means by which we can abuse, exploit, control, and degrade one another. God designed sex as a marital glue that helps to bind us together, to make us one. A healthy sex life ought to grow and deepen over the duration of our marriage as the husband discovers the joy of pleasing his wife, as the wife discovers the joy of pleasing her husband. The best sex you will ever have is not on your honeymoon. Self-centeredness in the bedroom is something that dishonors the Lord and your spouse, but the willful and joyful giving of yourself is something that will build your marriage up and will glorify the God who brought you together. And if for some reason your sex life is not fostering that ever-deepening sense of intimacy and oneness in your marriage, then perhaps today is the day. Perhaps today is the day that you need to stop and ask some questions. Maybe today is the day when you need to confront the elephant in the bedroom, something that is eating away at your marriage, something that is driving a wedge between you. Maybe the best sermon application that will happen today is when some of you sit down after the kids are in bed and have an open and honest conversation about how things are really going in your marriage and whether there is some aspect of your married life where Satan has been permitted to get a foothold. We must, we must as Christian couples learn to talk about sex. We must express our sexual desires to one another. We must express our sexual frustrations and lay out our expectations and our moral boundaries. We need to come in our marriages to mutual agreement about how frequently we will be intimate. And then we must be attentive to the sexual overtures and invitations of our spouse. Even when we've had a hard day, even when we're not in the mood, even when the thing we want to do the most is just to roll over and go to sleep. I think it's pretty obvious. This morning's sermon has been a little more sensitive than most. And I sincerely hope that nothing I have said this morning by way of exhortation and application has offended you or has made you feel uncomfortable unnecessarily because that has certainly not been my intention today. We are dealing with a practical subject in God's Word that addresses a sensitive, personal, but important part of our lives. Brothers and sisters, the Bible is not silent about what ought to be happening in the bedroom, and because the Word of God is not silent, our pulpit should not be silent either. Because here's the honest truth about it. You and I will either form our convictions about sexuality from the mind of God as revealed in this inspired book, Or else we will get our ideas about sex and marriage from the perverse, depraved culture around us that has twisted and perverted sex almost beyond recognition. So take your pick. Married couples of Rosedale, I urge you, take this word to heart. Do whatever needs to be done in the context of your own marriage to please the Lord by pleasing and submitting to your spouse. Singles of Rosedale, If you think there was nothing important, nothing practical, nothing helpful in this sermon this morning for you, I hope and I pray that you will patiently bear with me. This morning we are speaking specifically about sex within marriage, but the Apostle Paul has plenty more to say in the remainder of this chapter that applies to your situation, and we are going to get to that teaching in just a couple weeks. Marriage is a gift from God. 
Singleness is a gift from God. That's part of Paul's point in this chapter, and he has something important to say here to each and every one of us. But whether you're here this morning as a married person or as a single person, Satan's ploy is the same. Satan would love nothing more than to destroy your spiritual life and to ruin your witness for Christ by getting you off course in this area of sexual morality. One way that Satan actively attempts to destroy the church of Christ on earth is by destroying our marriages and our families. And one of the most effective tools that Satan has in his arsenal to destroy marriage is by distorting and corrupting our ideas about sex and our practice of sex. And so, Christian brothers and sisters, by the power of the Holy Spirit within you, let us not allow Him to do it to us. Not when we're married. Not when we're single. Let us be a church that encourages one another in sexual purity. A church that prays for one another so that no one among us may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And in our Christian marriages, may we always display the glory and the love of Jesus Christ. May we display in our sexual lives the majesty of the Gospel by loving one another selflessly, self-sacrificially, by willingly giving of ourselves for the good of our spouse, just as the Lord Jesus gave Himself for the good of His bride, the church. Amen.